To start with, though, and here in Matthew, before we actually uh, read Matthew chapter 9 and get into this, I want to show you a picture. What do you see in this picture? What do you think that is in the picture, besides trees? <laughs> Military cemetery, yeah, very good. I won't ask you to tell me which one. But it is a cemetery. And the reason I'm showing you a picture of cemeteries is, well, you'll, you'll, you'll understand what it has to do with Matthew 9 in a moment, but we all understand that cemeteries have been around a very long time, haven't they? Uh, since the beginning you know, creation, uh, since Genesis chapter 3, people have died. So cemeteries are a constant reminder that human beings are mortal. By mortal, I mean that we, we die. And so that's the reality. Whether we like it or not, we live in a dying world. Everything dies. And before all of us, we have this death is looming before us, right? People may even make jokes about that. You know, the, the only two things you're assured of in life is taxes and death, right? And so our bodies are deteriorating. We're in this deteriorating world that we live in which, of course, is marked by death. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, which is one of the key events of history, the fall, there's been a curse on this earth. There's been a curse on human bodies. And that curse has sent the earth and and all the creatures and, and, and everything in this earth spiraling into disaster, sickness, and death. And even the grave itself. Well, praise God for the Old Testament prophets who predicted that one day there would be a, there, one day there would be a Messiah that would have power to bring back the wholeness to life. And when Jesus came into the world, He demonstrated that power. Today's story is again going to demonstrate the power how how King Jesus brings wholeness back to life. And though the final fulfillment of the prophecies regarding his power would actually be in the future, Jesus fully proved his ability to fulfill those prophecies during his earthly ministry. We see Jesus virtually uh, banish disease. He multiplied food. He calmed the storms. He cast out demons. He forgave sin. And praise God, he even raised the dead. He gave a sampling of the glorious future kingdom that was to come. And, and, and of course, a part of that glorious future kingdom, one of the things that I love the most is no more death. Death's gone. Christ conquered death when He rose. And here in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew gives another set of three miracles. We've been looking at these triads, the, the, the set of trios, if you will. And... Here, one of the things we see is that Jesus demonstrated his power to restore life to the whole body. Not just part of it, but the whole body. The first set of the miracles we see is actually a set of, this this one, it comes as a group of two, if you will. We see Jesus heals a woman and raises a girl. Look at verse 18, Matthew 9, verse 18. Matthew gives the setting here in verse 18. It says, while he was saying these things, what what things? Well, you have to look at the previous context. 
while he was talking about these other things, a question about fasting. It says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. This ruler has a problem. Look at the ruler's problem here. A very serious problem. He says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, according to the Gospel of Mark, uh, by the way, if you, when you are looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, let me encourage you to think of them as a whole. They, they don't always say the same thing, and uh, I encourage you to use some form either on the internet or in a book or even in the study Bible will give you the comparisons, of, particularly of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and read them together. They don't always say the same thing. They, they elaborate on each other. Uh, they have different emphases. And according to the Gospel of Mark, Mark actually gives this synagogue ruler's name. His name is, oh, I'm not sure how you exactly say it, but I'm going to call his name Jairus. Now, this guy would have been a wealthy patron. He would have been a member of the synagogue board who was responsible for several things. For example, he would have been responsible for the order and the progress of worship in the synagogue itself. His job was to distribute tasks, handle the finances, and uh, actually maintain the synagogue building itself. So this is interesting. This is who this man is. This is what he does. And so for him, notice Matthew says he actually comes before Jesus. And what is his posture? He actually kneels before Jesus. A humbling position. So for a highly respected community leader to actually fall down at the feet of Jesus is very unusual. (laughs) Very unusual. Now, it's doing two things for us here. It shows both his desperate plight, his daughter died, but it's also showing the incredible steam that he has for Jesus. It's also showing his faith, because he's going to the right person. And and the, the faith of this man is amazing, because he says, well, look what he says there in verse 18, come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Well, how does Jesus respond to this? Look at verse 19. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So Jesus is not alone. Jesus immediately responds to this man and goes with him. Well, as Jesus is going, there is a divine appointment that Jesus has with a woman who who has been bleeding. So let's look at the action here in verse 20. It says in verse 20, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. That's a sad situation here. Uh, So let me explain a few things to you. We have an unfortunate woman. She suffered what was probably menstrual bleeding that the Bible says hadn't stopped for 12 years. Mark actually tells us that she had spent all her money that she had on physicians, and Mark says it did no good. There was was actually no result that she was happy with as a result of spending her money on those physicians. 
Now, you have to understand about something. If, if you read the Old Testament, someone who's been bleeding was considered unclean. She, she was considered the same as a leper. She was an outcast of society. So she would have had to sneak into town, and that would have taken great courage in and of itself, to, to sneak into town. Everybody would have known she was unclean. And uh, if she was detected, she would have been thrown out of the area as someone who was ceremonially unclean. Now, why was she trying to touch the hem of Jesus' robe? Now, I don't know exactly which part she was trying to touch. This is one, you see in the picture there, somebody's interpretation. But most likely, the hem of the robe refers to the four corners at the bottom of the robe. Uh, there, were, there most likely would have been tassels there, and, and I say that because the Old Testament law required there to be tassels on the bottom of the robe. So Jesus, you know, he was always trying to fulfill the, the Old Testament law, and so he probably would have had them. And so uh, what, I, what I found in studying this was touching a hem was an ancient symbol for deep trust and prayer. So she's believing that even just an indirect touch of Jesus would heal her. And so this act shows her faith then, doesn't it? Showing great faith. She believed that even an indirect touch would heal her. So we see an example of this woman's faith here in verse 21. Look, look at verse 21. Here's what she said to herself in verse 21. If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. That's incredible faith. The word well there in the ESV means spiritual salvation in other places. If you take that Greek word and compare it to where it's used elsewhere in Scripture, it has the idea of spiritual salvation. So she's thinking, obviously, I, I think this is what she's thinking, more than just physical healing. Here it probably stresses the combined physical and spiritual effects of the healing. Well, Jesus gives a pronouncement in verse 22. In the first part of verse 22, he responds to this woman. Look, look what he says. He knows he's been touched because in verse 22 it says, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. He says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now look at the results of her faith. It says in verse, verse 22, your faith, uh, and instantly the woman was made well. Instantly the woman was made well. So unlike a lot of the, uh, the charlatans and the, the rubbish that goes on today, when, when Jesus heals, when God heals, it's instant. Instant. Not partial, it's instant wholeness. So that was, on, remember, this, this story of the healing of this bleeding woman was while Jesus was on the way to Jairus' daughter who had died. So we come back to this now in verse 23, and we see that Jesus raises the ruler's child from the dead. Notice verse 23 starts with an and, again, connecting it here. Verse 23 says, And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but 
sleeping. And they laughed at him. <laughs> so here we got this setting, okay? Try to, try to picture this in your mind. A Jewish funeral, all right, is a bit different from the kind of funerals we have today. Uh, as far as I know, none of us go and do what was typical in a Jewish funeral. Uh, what was typical and normal in a Jewish funeral was they would actually hire professional mourners who would wail loudly and say the person's name. They actually paid them to do this. And uh, another thing they would do is they would actually hire professional musicians. In this case, we, the Bible says these were flute players. <laughs> they were actually So that's the setting here. Jesus comes on the scene. The girl's obviously dead. Otherwise, why would there be the, the professional musicians and professional mourners there if the girl was not dead? Now, that's, that's, you need to keep that in mind because Jesus comes to the scene. and we, we already said Jesus told them, hey, she's not dead but sleeping. Now, that's an interesting statement, which I'll explain in a moment. But notice Jesus' command in verse 24. Jesus actually commands them, go away. Go away. That's a command. Jesus tells the mourners to leave. You're no longer needed. That's why he told them to leave. You guys aren't needed. I'm here. I'm going to handle this situation. Jesus said that the girl is sleeping. All right. You may have seen that used elsewhere in the New Testament. So what does he mean? Well, sleeping often in the New Testament is a euphemism for death. But Jesus is actually using the word sleeping here metaphorically to say that her death was just something that was temporary. It wasn't permanent, in other words. It's like she's just gone for a short sleep and she's going to wake up. Because that's what Jesus is going to do for her. She's going to bring her out of her, out of her death. Well, what's the result the results in verse 25. Verse 25 says, But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. That's the result. Instant healing from death. Jesus brought her back from the dead. The, the, the reaction of the crowd, though, is quite interesting in verse 26, because it says there in verse 26, And the report of this went throughout all that district. So they're, t they're taking what, it, what Jesus... What it, which, of course, was an amazing event. They're taking this amazing event that Jesus did by raising this girl from the dead, and they're taking that news out into the region around you know, that, that north part around the Sea of Galilee. Remember, Jesus is, is in the area of Capernaum, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So what lessons can we learn from this story? What, what's the point? Why is this here in our Bibles? Well, number one, we need to recognize that the, the bleeding woman is illustrating a greater truth than just Jesus healing someone. It actually illustrates our own desperate condition that's due to our sin, that's a result of our sin. So let's think about this for a moment. Number one, she was unclean. Whatever the source of her bleeding, it would have, uh, of course, weakened her. If you bleed constantly, apparently it was constant, if you're bleeding constantly for 12 years and losing that much blood, you're going to be weakened. So she probably would have been anemic. She probably would have been low in iron, amongst other things. 
Uh, it would have made her subject to other diseases. And on top of all that, she would have been cons- considered ceremonially unclean by the Jews of her day. For example, Leviticus 15, Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25 says this, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. That's what the Old Testament says. That's what God said. So she was considered unclean in her day. Number two, she was isolated. She was isolated. Why? Because people could not come into contact with someone who is considered unclean. Someone couldn't even touch something that an unclean person had touched. For example, if, if she li- was lying on a bed, you couldn't even touch the bed. If she sat in a chair, you couldn't sit in that chair lest you yourself become unclean. That's what the Old Testament says. So as a result of that, she's she's isolated. Nobody wants to be made unclean. So she was essentially like the lepers. Nobody could touch her. She was not allowed to touch other people. And so sadly, her bleeding probably destroyed her chances for marriage. Sad situation, isn't it? So she would have been very, very lonely because she was isolated. And number three, she was incurable. Remember, Dr. Luke, he's a physician, Dr. Luke said no one could heal her. The Bible also says she had been ill for 12 years. So she's incurable. And then number four, we also see she needed Jesus. Because she's unclean, she's isolated and incurable, she needs King Jesus. She needs the great physician. As far as she was concerned, she was bleeding to death, which put her beyond hope. She had given up hope. But there's always hope with Jesus. No one is too unclean. Nobody's too isolated. No one's too hopeless for Jesus to save. And so this story is a good picture of every one of us apart from the healing grace of Jesus Christ. Every one of us is unclean because of sin. Every one of us is isolated and separated from God, a holy God, because of our sin. Every one of us is incurable. There is nothing you and I can do. No one on planet Earth can heal us of the greatest disease of sin. And so we all need Jesus. And so, if you've been saved, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, then this is what King Jesus has done for you. Now let me ask you, what does sin do to us after all? Think about this. What does sin do to us after all? First of all, sin makes us unclean. It contaminates us. None of us can come before a holy God until our sin is dealt with. Romans makes this clear. We're all sinners. None of us are righteous, no, not one. We all fall short of God's glory. So sin makes us unclean. Number two, sin also isolates us. It keeps us from this holy God. It also isolates us from other people. The reason why you have interrelational problems with people 
whoever those people may be, is, is because you're a sinner and they're a sinner. So it isolates us. Number three, sin makes us hopeless apart from God's grace. That's the problem we have. And so we need to praise Him then for His grace. Praise Him for what He's done for us then, don't we? So we need Jesus Christ just as this woman needed Jesus Christ. So this, the story of the bleeding woman is, is illustrating a great, the, the grace of God in our own lives, not just in her life. Second, what else can we learn? Second lesson is that Jesus has authority over death. Jesus has authority over death. Jesus can command dead people to come back to life. And this is good news because the one who has the power to raise a little girl is the one who is the resurrection and the life. He literally is that. In fact, Jesus calls himself that in the Gospels. I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me, he says. He's conquered death once and for all when he came out of that tomb some 2,000, over 2,000 years ago. So Jesus has authority over death. And number three, the third lesson we can learn is that Jesus has compassion for the unfortunate, the outcast of society. He, in both cases, makes himself ritually unclean. And and how does he do this? He touches people. He does the unacceptable thing, the thing that certainly the scribes and the Pharisees would never do, and touch people, touch unclean people. He touched a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He touched a dead body, which, again, would make you ceremonially unclean. Jesus was often willing to break the Jewish taboos of his day, wasn't he? (laughs) He's he's constantly doing this. We've seen this already in Matthew. Constantly breaking the Jewish taboos in order to help people who are suffering. People were greater than the Jewish taboos of his day. And there's a lesson in this for us, isn't there? Mercy for the hurting and suffering should be the hallmark of the church should be the hallmark of the church, should be the hallmark of your life. Mercy for the hurting and the suffering. Number four, faith allows a person to participate in the work of God. Faith allows a person to participate in the work of God. Now, I want to be very careful here. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because we see the, this truth both in the, the, the bleeding woman as well as the synagogue ruler. What do we see here? We see humility. We see a total dependence on Jesus Christ. The synagogue ruler did, I'm sure, the unacceptable thing of his peer group and comes and kneels before Jesus. He humbles himself and shows great faith. The bleeding woman, again, humbles herself, comes back into town, even though she's an outcast, kneeling before Jesus not even, not even believing that she, she, she can even talk to Jesus. She just, if I can just touch him, showing great humility and dependence. Now it's true that Jesus does not depend on the faith of these people to work his healing power in them. Okay, Jesus can heal people even when they're not showing faith. Right? We, we've already seen that. Jesus does that for people even when they don't even ask for it. 
but it is faith that turns healing into a salvation experience. That is key. Remember, if you've, if you've become a Christian, the Bible says you were saved by faith in Christ alone, by His grace, through faith in Christ alone. So faith allows a, participate, a person to participate in the work of God. You're saved by faith in Christ. Sanctification is going to continue to work in your life by faith. We'll see this, this, this kind of theme continuing on here uh, as we read on. But let's, let's move on to the, to the next section here. Starting here in verse 27, we see that Jesus heals two blind men. Look at verse 27, because we see the action here in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! That's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's a remarkable cry when you really think about it. For if you think of the progression of Revelation through the book of Matthew, no one as of yet has has even come close to the understanding of Jesus Christ that these two blind men do, they actually call him the son of David. Right? Only the demons had that kind of an understanding, but of course they didn't believe. Now, as far as I know, if you read the previous chapters of Matthew, no other human being has this understanding of Jesus. So it's a remarkable cry. What are they actually saying, though? Son of David. Well, you have to go back to Matthew chapter 1 and kind of understand what, what, is, what are they getting at here? What are they saying? Well, these blind men are actually affirming that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The long-awaited one. The anointed one. They believe the messianic promises of the Old Testament. For example, let me give you one. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. That's a messianic prophecy. Looking several hundred years to Jesus Christ. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. So when Christ comes on the scene here, and He starts opening blind eyes, the Jews who knew the Old Testament should have immediately recognized the Messiah. Nobody else was doing this. Then will the eyes of the the blind be opened. So the healing of the blind was viewed as a messianic miracle, and these two men viewed Jesus as the Messiah, and because they viewed Him as the Messiah, they're asking for help. Because they know He can do it. They have great faith. But Jesus has a question for them. Jesus kind of interrogates their faith, if you will, in verse 28. Look at verse 28. When He entered the house... The blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. So Jesus' question is, Do you believe I am able to do this? He's interrogating their faith. Are you guys just saying this? Are you, or you, you actually believe that I am the Son of David, that I am the Messiah? Do you actually believe it? interesting the word able there means power jesus is testing their faith in his power as messiah 
not enough to just claim something, is it? We need to actually believe it. And of course, their, their answer to Jesus' question is, Yes, Lord! <laughs> yes, we believe! Well, then Jesus gives a pronouncement in verse 29. He says, Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. The phrase, according to your faith, my understanding of this, it, well, let me give you the negative first. It does not mean faith was the basis of their healing. Okay? I hope we all are on the same, same plane here, if you will, that Jesus' sovereign authority is the sole basis of their healing. Jesus does not have to heal people. You understand that? Just because someone has faith and just because someone prays and asks for healing doesn't mean it's going to happen. So Jesus' sovereign authority is the basis of this healing. However, Jesus is responding to the fact of their faith. It's according to their faith. He recognizes that faith and he responds. There's no meritorious aspect to faith. Faith does not guarantee healing. Faith um, but what I can say is this, though. It allows you and I and, and, and all who have faith to participate in God's blessings. Right? Faith save us, saves us. Faith is involved in sanctification as well. All who come to God must believe that He is. And he's a rewarder. God's pleased with that. And look at the result here in verse 30. Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. So again, immediate healing here. But look at the reason. Jesus, after Jesus heals these men, Jesus gives them a warning. And here in verse 30, look at the warning. It's a very stern warning, by the way. You, you get that idea even in ESV, because it says, Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. In other words, Jesus is saying, See that nobody knows what I just did for you. I healed you of your blindness. But, but, but think about this for a moment. These guys are blind, right? <clears throat> At least everybody in that community knows these guys are blind. So you go walking out of the, into the community, people are going to know, right? You, you can't hide that. But it's interesting to me that Jesus sternly warns them. The language here is particularly strong when you look at it in the original language. Jesus clearly didn't want his messianic nature to be fully revealed to everyone. Why? Because the Jewish people expected a messianic king. They weren't expecting they weren't expecting uh, sorry, they were not expecting the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. They were not expecting that. They're expecting a conquering king. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why Jesus constantly goes around kind of suppressing people's passion for him and what he's done. So Jesus gives them this stern admonition here. And he can't be more direct with them. He wanted nobody to know. But their response is in verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. <laughs> Again, Again, Jesus' fame is spreading despite the fact he is telling people not to do that. Now, it's interesting when you read commentators uh, on this particular one. 
I don't think Matthew's emphasizing their disobedience here. I don't think that's the point. I think the emphasis is on Jesus' desire to avoid publicity. I think there's another aspect here, is, is the impossibility of remaining silent when someone is touched by Jesus. I think that's something we need to zoom in and focus on here as well. So there's the aspect of Jesus is trying to avoid publicity, unnecessary publicity, but we also need to see that when Jesus touches somebody, most of the time they're not silent about that. When Jesus does something in their life, they're they got to go tell. they got to spread the news. And, and the Bible says here in verse, uh, as well as in verse 26, they spread the news throughout Galilee. What lessons can we learn from this story? Number one, all can come to Jesus to be healed. All can come to Jesus to be healed. The blind men had no historical reason to suppose that they could be healed of their blindness. As far as I know, nobody else had been healed of blindness up to this point at least at the time of Jesus. It had never happened before. Yet, apparently they had, believe, they had a belief that, that Jesus, King Jesus, is the Davidic Messiah of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, and that the promises had finally come true. And so, my friend, please understand that both the physical as well as spiritual healing is something that's still available today. Okay. However, I'm not saying there are healers like Jesus around today. But God is still healing people physically as well as spiritually, isn't he? Okay. I don't think, I don't think there's people around like Jesus today. But nevertheless, God is still healing people. There's been amazing stories. and You, you may have known, known of some where maybe someone had cancer, for example, and... and uh, you know, the doctor's giving them bad news about their cancer and church prays for them and then they end up going back and the doctors are mystified because there's no sign of cancer anymore or a tumor or a tumor disappears or whatever. There's stories like this where God is still healing people. But the greatest miracle of all is not the physical, but it's the spiritual healing that God is doing today. Because think about it, as Scripture says, what does it profit a man even if you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul? So what good would it do to heal someone physically and then they lose their own soul? Of course, that, that profits them nothing. All can come to Jesus to be healed. And so we need to understand that both the physical and the spiritual healing is still available today. And it's not based on any merit of our own. Okay? God doesn't choose to heal you, whether physically or spiritually, based on your merit, based on you know, something within you. He doesn't look at, at you and say, well, you, know, <clears throat> you sinned less today than your sister sinned today, or, right? so I'm going to heal you. No, God doesn't do that sort of thing. It's not based on you. It's only on God's gracious compassion and mercy. Number two, faith is how we participate in God's work. Again, we see this, this truth coming out here. Faith is how we participate in God's work. Think about this. The blind men were healed not on the basis of the quality of their faith. That wasn't why. But it's because they threw themselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, what I'm trying to say is the object of their faith was the, the important issue here. Not their faith itself. The object of their faith. What is the object of their faith? It's in Christ. Which is exactly where our faith needs to be. And so if you're a Christian, then you were saved by faith in Christ alone. And that saved faith turns any event in your life into a relationship so we can experience God and His work in our lives. It's the only way you're going to experience God's work in your life. Well, there's another miracle that takes place in this passage of Scripture. We see next that Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. He heals a demon-possessed man. Look at verse 32. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And look at the result in verse 33. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And there's a reaction to this as well here in verse 33. Look at the first reaction. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. So we see the crowds were astonished. And by the way, as we think about the result of what Jesus did here, he cast this demon possessed, or sorry, he cast the demon out of this man. The words cast out, okay, are describing, again, in the original language, a violent act. The demons, you know, they don't go willingly. They're, they're fighting tooth and nail, so to speak. They're, they're, if they could stay in there, they would. But they don't have the power to do that. Jesus commands them, and they go. Describing a violent act. And so with the exorcism, the man is healed, and then he's again able to speak. So his ability to speak returns. The first reaction from the crowd is interesting. They're astonished, it says there in verse 33. This comment sums up all the miracles that Jesus has performed. They hadn't seen anything like this in Israel. In, in the nation, that's, by the way, that's referring to the nation of Israel. They hadn't seen anything like that. This, this set of miracles up to this point. They're saying that Jesus is better than the prophets of old, even Elijah and Elisha. Well, there's another reaction. It'd be nice if it stayed at that, but of course, the Pharisees are forever hanging around. And they also have a reaction in verse 34. Look at verse 34. It says, but, but, the Pharisees said, he, that's Jesus, cast out demons by the prince of demons. Whoa, wow. Did they get it wrong or what? So their reaction is they're actually accusing Jesus. Interestingly enough, there's, there's three kinds of speaking in these final verses. Let me just highlight the three kinds of speaking for you. Number one, the crowds spoke about Jesus. They spoke about Jesus. Why? Because they were amazed, the Bible says. They said nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Is that true? Well, of course it is. Yeah, that's true. But is that enough? And the answer to that question is no, it's not enough to just be amazed. It's not enough to just speak about Jesus. My friends, Jesus is more than a baby. As we come up to Christmas season, let me remind you, He is not in the manger anymore. 
Okay? Should you believe that? That Jesus became a man and dwelt among us? Absolutely, that's a great miracle. But he's more than that. Was Jesus a prophet? Of course he was. But Jesus is more than a prophet. Okay? We shouldn't just be amazed. We, just, we shouldn't just speak about him. There's a second speaking going on here in these verses. We see the Pharisees spoke against Jesus. Again and again, we're seeing this opposition to Jesus, His person and His work and His ministry coming, coming to light here. And, and, and of course, it's going to end with Jesus being nailed to the cross. The Pharisees spoke against Jesus. Earlier on, we saw they criticized Jesus for eating with sinners. Oh, my. Jesus is eating with sinners. And in the story about Jairus' daughter, they're laughing at Jesus. And here they're doing the worst thing of all. Why are they doing this? Why are they speaking against Jesus? Accusing Him of things that aren't even true. They're slandering Him. Well, think about it. Can they actually deny the miracles that Jesus is doing? Can they, can they actually say that, hey, you know, those, those two blind guys over there, they can't actually see, right? I, I, maybe they weren't actually blind to begin with. Maybe they're just, you know, making this up. You know, what are, what are they going to do with that? What are they going to do with Jairus's daughter, who's who's dead, and now she's she's walking around? What are they going to do with that? Well, they got to come up with. They, they can't. One thing they can't do is they. Well, I suppose if they were fools, they could try to deny that. But they they change their tactic instead of going down that road. They they try to attribute these miracles, to Satan's power. Okay, there's some amazing things going on here, but, you know, this is not God's work. This is actually Satan doing this. Whoa. So what are they doing here? In the process, they're actually showing themselves to be closer to Satan than to Jesus. They're actually closer to Satan than to Jesus. Well, then we got a group here, the healed people, so to speak. They're speaking... For Jesus. So we got crowds speaking about him. That's not enough. And it's certainly not appropriate to speak against Jesus. What we should be doing, though, is speaking for Jesus. That's the third reaction. The healed people spoke for Jesus. They experienced a wonderful deliverance. And they're able to, they, I should say, they were unable to keep silent about what Jesus had done for them. That's the appropriate response. All who've been saved by Jesus Christ, are certainly going to want to talk about Him. Why is it that so many people, after their conversion, when they come to Christ, they've they got to go tell all their friends. They've got to tell their family members. They, they can't keep quiet. And then, and then they don't understand why everybody else doesn't love Jesus like they do, right? Some of the most fervent evangelists are the ones who've just been saved. That's a normal response when... King Jesus saves you. So let me ask you, how about you? How about you? You still have that that fervency? Do you want to tell other people about Jesus? Do you want to tell them what Jesus has done for you? If Jesus has done something for you, you need to be telling other people. Don't hold it in. It's, It's a treasure that's not to be hoarded, but one to be given away. So what can we learn from this story? 
What can we learn from this story? Number one, Jesus has all authority. That's, I think, the, the predominant thing that seems to be coming out in Matthew 8 and 9 is Jesus has all authority. And in this case, he even has authority over the demonic realm. He can cast out demons just by speaking the word, just by saying, go, and they go. Well, during this time period, many people thought, hey, you had to do lengthy incantations and elaborate rituals, and even then you weren't assured of demons leaving people and leaving you alone. Gone are the lengthy incantations and the elaborate rituals. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. And He has all authority to command demons to leave. Number two, Jesus calls for faith in those He heals. He calls for faith in those He heals. Now, now remember, faith is not a necessary ingredient in Jesus' healing. There's plenty of people that Jesus healed, and they never said a thing. They weren't able to say a thing. I mean, if you're dead, you can't, you can't even say anything, right? So Jesus doesn't always heal people just because of their faith, right? But it turns physical healing into salvation. Interestingly enough, when you study the original languages here, that's, that's the idea. They're, they're not just saved physically, they're saved spiritually as well. And they become followers of Christ. Number three, in Jesus, the Old Testament promises have been fulfilled. You've probably heard me say this before. The Old Testament is promises made. New Testament is promises kept. Lots of Old Testament, lots of Old Testament promises, right? Most of them pointing to Christ, aren't they? That's the whole point. It's the point to Christ. In the New Testament, we see that all those Old Testament promises were pointing to Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of them. In the last two miracles, we saw Isaiah chapter 53 actually come to fruition. Christ is the Messiah who completes those Old Testament promises. And for Matthew, the Old Testament, remember, by the way, remember, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book except Romans. More than the other Gospels, he's quoting the Old Testament. So he's writing to the Jews, so of course he's going to go back to the Old Testament to show that Jesus is king. So for Matthew, the Old Testament looked forward to Christ. It prepared the way for him. And Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the king. Number four, neutrality is not an option. Neutrality is not an option. Oh, people sometimes try to remain neutral. But my friends, listen closely to me. Please look at me. You try to remain neutral, you can't. It doesn't work that way. Okay? Neutrality, if you try to remain neutral, you're actually going backwards. You've got to keep going forwards. The crowds, what are they doing? They're increasingly uh, holding Jesus in awe here in the book of Matthew, aren't they? What, what, are the, what are the religious leaders doing, though? They're not going forward. They're not holding Jesus in awe. They're, they're continually rejecting and opposing Jesus. They're going in the opposite direction. So obviously the best option is for us to then move toward Jesus, not away from Him. Okay, But some people 
some people are very apathetic, right? Let me tell you, apathy is actually a rejection of Christ. In fact, read, read the book of Revelation. One of those seven churches of Revelation, Jesus says, you make me sick to the church that was apathetic. You make me sick. I'd rather you be cold or hot. Apathy is not where you want to be. Middle of the road is not where you want to be. You cannot remain neutral when you encounter Christ. Oh, I forget who it was. Um, somebody was jokingly saying that, uh, it may have been Ray Comfort, gave the illustration of how some people claim they've come to Christ and they've had this glorious conversion experience and their lives never change. The illustration goes like this. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of silly. That's like some guy walking into the office on Monday morning saying, hey, I just got run over by an 18-wheel truck. And you'd all look at the guy and say, okay, show me the tire marks. Let me see some broken bones, any bruises. You know, is your head still attached? You know, we'd be looking at the guy. You got ran over by an 18-wheel truck? Well, how fast was he going? What happened? Did you go to the hospital? You know, We'd be looking at the guy making fun of the guy, wouldn't we? Like, yeah, sure, right. You can't get hit by something that powerful and they're not have an impact on your life. And the illustration holds over in the spiritual realm. You cannot be impacted by Jesus Christ and it not change you in some way. <laughs> Neutrality is not an option. Every time you hear the Bible preach, you have to respond positively. Okay? Whenever some preacher preaches the Word of God, you must respond positively. If you don't, what happens is the Bible says you grow hardened, you grow cold in your heart, you grow calloused, and eventually you keep doing that, you're going to go farther and farther away from God, and there, there'll be nothing eventually. So every time you hear the Bible preach, you've got to respond positively, or else you're going to grow increasingly hardened to Christ. You're going to gradually shift from the crowd-like attitude of awe to the Pharisee-like attitude of rejection and opposition. Neutrality is not an option. Okay? Do you hear me? Which is one reason why when, when we're done preaching, we, we have a song. We, we, sing, we usually sing a hymn, right? Gives you a, a time, if you haven't done that already, a time to respond to God, positively respond to God to what you've seen in the Scriptures. Do what James 1 says. Don't just hear the Word, but be a doer of the Word. If, you don't, if you're not saying within your own heart every time the Word is preached and you're reading the Word of God, I will do whatever you want me to do, then you're actually going backwards. Your heart's going to grow hardened and cold and lifeless. So may God give us the grace to love Christ with our entire being. 